What is the end of study? Let me know. Why that to know which else we should not know? Things hid and barred, you mean, from common sense? Aye, that is study's godlike recompense. Those lines come from Love's Labor's Lost, a comedy that William Shakespeare wrote in the 16th century. And it turns out, these phrases pose a question that maybe still matters, four centuries later, for teachers and students and everyone else who cares about education. Hello, and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, a weekly look at how education is changing. I'm Rebecca Koenig, a reporter here at EdSurge. This week, we're asking big questions about what is the end, or purpose, of study, with a professor of English who believes that Shakespeare's own training in rhetoric, craftsmanship, and conversation reveals the answer. Scott Newstock is the founding director of the Pierce Shakespeare Endowment. That's down at Rhodes College in Memphis. He's out with a new book called How to Think Like Shakespeare, Lessons from a Renaissance Education. It's a slim, surprising exploration of the value that deeply human engagement has in a modern world full of data points and distractions. Newstock writes that humans come preloaded with a killer app, thinking, that we mostly avoid using because, well, it's hard. So he offers us this guide, full of fun footnotes and historical images, for developing a fully deployed mind like Shakespeare's own. It did not take me many pages before I grabbed a pen and notebook to take down ideas for how to sharpen my own writing and thinking. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. I want to start with a sort of obvious question, which is, why should we want to think like William Shakespeare? So I I take Shakespeare as a kind of stand-in for a long and I think wonderful tradition of pedagogy that led to hundreds of years of great thinkers and great writers. He happens to be the the focus of my work and my scholarship, but I'm 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 thinking through that figure as a kind of way into a whole series of fascinating educational practices that include, as you've already mentioned, being heavily invested in conversation and in dialogue in, in all kinds of wonderfully different ways. Uh, heavily devoted to being fluent in language and being flexible in the ways that you can articulate yourself in the world. And then I, I think something that seems particularly Shakespearean to me or, or characteristic of the era from which he emerged is a, a commitment to being, I would say, anti-doctrinal about, about seeing multiple perspectives on on any issue and, and trying to think your way into a more nuanced complex sense of any any problem that faces you by looking at it through multiple perspectives. So, I mean, that's that's something that drama does really well. And I think his educational training that, again, was conversation-based does well. It encourages you not to think your way into a corner and, and to instead be flexible enough that you can you can see multiple sides to to any any issue. Great. Uh, it, the book brought immediately to mind the student that I tutor. She's in high school, and she often stops in the middle of reading a passage or figuring out a math problem to lament and even accuse that this is hard. Uh, and you write that that is sort of the point, uh, and you offer wonderful quotations about that. 
why is thinking difficult and why why is it maybe good for learning and education that thinking is difficult? You know, I begin the book with a whole series of famous quotations relating to exactly that saying something like, thinking is hard and that's why we spend most of our lives not doing it. And the great educational psychologist, Daniel Willingham, has a line along along that similar spirit saying that it's actually cognitively very difficult for us to think and it's much easier for us to take all, all kinds of shortcuts. In terms of your student, you know, I think the one of the one of the challenges I always feel, whether I'm a, thinking of myself as a parent with my own children or or thinking my way into my teaching scenarios, is trying to stage and motivate and articulate the reasons why someone would have done this thing in the first place. Why why was this math problem a challenge to Isaac Newton? Why was Mary Shelley attempting to write in this particular way. And I think the more, the more we can stage the, the kinds of things that we're doing in tutoring and in, in classes and in teaching, the more we can stage those as human challenges, the more that helps our students realize that this was a human being that was struggling with something pretty profound. And it took a lot of intellectual labor to get to do what they were they were doing so that that makes it feel like it's less abstract and and less like a kind of rote or or arbitrary exercise and more more like it's a human challenge and that you you are part of a, a long long-standing human continuity of of confronting challenges with your mind that's definitely more inspiring uh than just you know too bad <laughs> sorry mm-hmm. this is hard keep going um and it's hard you know that's it it is a lot of times I think those kinds of questions are animated by a real feeling that the curriculum or the task in front of the student is does feel arbitrary and and does feel isolated from human activity and and from history and from um, from challenging circumstances. So again, I think the more you can kind of suffuse those moments with a sense of why was she doing this in the first place or why why would someone frame this in this way? Why would they care about this? Then that helps the student kind of occupy that same questioning space. Uh, pretty early on in your book, you address the question of the purpose of education. What What is the ends of all of this education? Uh, and I want to pose that question to you. What do you think the purpose of education ought to be? And what is the difference between, you know, sort of a short-term purpose and a longer, lifelong-term purpose? I like I like that distinction that you posed about the difference between short-term purposes and long-term purposes. I think, unfortunately, we all have a human tendency to focus on the short-term purpose or the short-term end, and th- that's reasonable in the short term to do that. It's always it's, it always makes sense to do that in the short term, especially in difficult circumstances. But sometimes that fixation on the short term means that you lose sight of the long-term purpose for why you were doing this in the first place. So, you know, I don't have anything radical to propose in terms of what I think the end of education is. I think it's to help create great citizens who can participate fully in the world and in contribute to the world around them. And that, that includes speaking well, and that includes being able to read complex things and be involved in difficult conversations. So those, again, those are not new kinds of suggestions. I'd like to think that every person who lives in a democracy would hope that that would be 
a feature of the entire citizenry, but they but they are vague and ambitious and and difficult things to achieve in the long run. And it's in some ways it's you can see why it's easier to focus on like we need to do this test because it's Friday and the state is mandating that we do this test rather than why are why did these standards come into play in the first place and what was the long term goal in terms of increasing literacy and increasing numeracy and increasing facility with language. So again, it's just a human fact that we we tend to focus on short-term goals. The danger in that is that you usually end up losing sight of the long-term goals. And sometimes you even end up perverting the long-term goals because you're so fixated on on teaching to the test or or getting past this stage, you you forget why why you did it in the first place. Uh, I appreciated all of the examples you offered uh, throughout the book about confusing the means for the ends of education, whether that be a standardized test or a piece of technology. Um, there was a great quote that I want to find about uh, the electrical light and the telegraph and the telephone. And it says, The enthusiasm for the progress achieved in lighting makes us sometimes forget that the essential thing is not the lighting itself, but what becomes more fully visible. People's ecstasy concerning the triumphs of the telegraph and telephone often makes them overlook the fact that what matters is the value of what one has to say. Can you tell us a little bit more about why you included this thought and how it relates to the means and the ends of education and the tools that we use now in the classroom. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great question that, you know, we, for all kinds of fascinating kind of bioevolutionary reasons, we are all very distractible and we all have our attention captured by the latest flashy thing and th- and that's as true for me as it is for anyone else. I think that if we keep reminding ourselves that this big, long-term, ambitious task of education is the development of your fullest human capacities to be self-reflective and to be able to articulate complex thoughts and engage with other people, then as long as you keep that in mind, it, you can you can always look at any new technique or technology or practice and think about how it could contribute to that long-term practice. But if you focus too much on like the gadget itself or on the technology itself, sometimes you forget that long-term thing and then you're just focusing on on the gadgetry or on which becomes more of a distraction rather than a vehicle for attaining something else. So, you know, I, I make, I, I want to be clear and I hope I'm clear in the book that I'm, I'm not anti-technology. I, I teach Shakespeare, which looks like a very musty topic, but it's actually been the focus of some really fantastic digital humanities scholarship. And I was just telling my students yesterday that the resources that they have at their fingertips are just jaw-dropping compared to what I was able to do as a student 25, 30 years ago. But but the that that shouldn't substitute for the fascinating, difficult dynamic of actually reading the plays. I mean, it, it can easily be a distraction that like you can do all kinds of amazing stuff with enormous data sets about every single work published in English before 1700. And you you can do that without actually reading a single one of those documents. And, th- and there are 
fascinating patterns that you can recognize by doing that large-scale data work. I the, the kinds of work that I find most compelling to read and that I love to see my students produce is work that is animated by the wrestling with the words themselves that you can that you can make more complicated and you can make more nuanced by using all kinds of digital tools but you are you're not substituting the the wrestling or the human engagement with those words of of the past you're enriching it and you're complicating it and you're you're kind of amplifying your cognitive capabilities but it all has to come back down to the human element and i guess that's a i think that's a re, i hope that's a recurrent theme in the book that that as long as you kind of keep your that sense of the center, like this is something about helping this child develop their capacities, then I'm not against anything that can work towards that, I think. But it's easy to get distracted and think, oh, if we just had this app, then that would solve this quandary. Or if we only implemented this curriculum, or if all classrooms had this technology, then suddenly everything would be better. And it's clear that there's no silver bullets in education. We've always known that. And I think it's become even more clear in the last couple of decades. That's not saying the same thing as that you're against any 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 technology, but it has to be informed by um, suffusing the, the the human element throughout the entire process. I do want to talk a little bit more about the critique of some modern education methods, especially those that do rely on digital technology. Um, there's a great image in the book about uh, how some of these tools make it seem like teachers are just vacuums that suck up children's data exhaust, which is a very evocative image. Um, and you mentioned ways in which some of these methods seem pretty hostile to teachers. Uh, can you say a little bit more about the practices that seem to be more and more pervasive that you don't think serve education well? Sure. I, you know, I think it's easy. Let, let's just take a really easy extreme example that often gets cited. Uh, Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin a few years ago basically said, why don't we just have uh, Ken Burns documentary on screen and then you don't even really need the teachers. And that that to me is mistaking what actually happens in an educational transaction. I think I think a good counterexample of, of that extreme statement or that extreme sentiment of getting rid of teachers or or you know, at a even at a milder level, getting rid of teachers' autonomy, is you know we've had things like textbooks for hundreds of years, for half a millennium. I could walk into a bookstore or a library if I if they're open. I could I could obtain a, a, a textbook on chemistry tomorrow, and supposedly I could follow that entire textbook on my own and learn chemistry and the same for I could do that for ancient Greek and I could do that for sociology in any subject. So it's not that the content isn't out there or in fact it's available at our fingertips. You can you can look at stuff online right now. But what's so what's lacking in that scenario? There, there's something else which is the, the human element of inspiration and the human element of guidance and the human element of someone tailoring their instruction to me and my personality and my circumstances and what tends to work best for me. Those things are all labor intensive. And because they're labor intensive, they're costly in all kinds of ways. They're time consuming. They're, um, they demand a, a really informed person who is subtle and nuanced about reading me and reading the peers, my classmates who are around me. 
So I guess if you if you kind of stand back and think about it on that level, if there's a among some people the kind of extreme fantasy of if we just delivered this content, then we could kind of get rid of the teachers. But in fact, that's that isn't the only thing that teachers do. That they they need to have content specific knowledge, but they also have all kinds of um, animating ways in which they help us care about that knowledge, and they nudge us, and they press us, and they shame us, and they inspire us. That, that's that's a complex art, and and it's one of the great things about teaching is that there's no one way to do that. And I think if any of us think back to our the great teachers that we've loved over our lives, they've all done very different things to inspire us. They had to know what they were talking about, but then they they had all all wonderfully different kinds of ways in which they they motivated us. So, if if you put it on that big scale, I think it's I I would like to think that that's not controversial. Um, it's it's more of the kind of fine grain level of um, how much you're implementing this and how much the teacher has autonomy to make decisions about what is in their classroom and what is not in their classroom and how much they shape the time of the classroom and how much they don't shape the time of their of their classroom. I think a lot of proponents of ed tech would agree with you um, about what what ideal teaching looks like mm-hmm. with, as you note, small class sizes, shared space, close give and take between teacher and student. Um, but I think they would say that they are trying to solve for that time-consuming, expensive, laborious part of, of the deal. Um, and, you know, in so doing, make good education widely accessible. I do, I do recognize that. And again, I, I, I think my sense is everyone's well-intentioned and everyone is trying to achieve roughly comparable goals. I guess, you know, one one thing that often seems revealing to me is would they put their children in the environment that they think other children should be in? I mean, that's an old John Dewey statement and it's a, it's a little harsh, but I think it's a fair bar in terms of would you universalize this? Um, Is this, is the kind of thing that you're proposing the thing that you think your own children should do? You know, that, that having been said, oftentimes when you're talking about creating greater access, you're, you're, you're starting from, uh, let's say a very low baseline, let's even, even in our remote environment right now, if, if you kind of have a scale of no interaction versus digitally mediated interaction, and then in, in human, in-person interaction, I think most of us would concede that that inhuman one does have some viable, you know, prefer, preferential circumstances, but the, but the mediated one is better than nothing. So, you know, on that scale, if we're talking about moving up from nothing to watching an online video about a topic, then that is a kind of improvement. Or if we're talking about um, reducing some of the labor-intensive dynamics of the in-person stuff, then that is an improvement. But again, it has to, I guess, I just keep on circling back to, it has to come back to that sense of um, suffusing the, mo- the interaction with the, with the human element and the human developmental dynamics. And that that, to me... That to me is some of the richest legacy of this kind of education that someone like Shakespeare would have received, which was it was intensely human on the level of 
being in person in a multi-age classroom with students teaching each other, with all kinds of um, public recitation and performance and, and working with difficult words and trying to find the right words to translate those words to your particular moment. That, that to me, all of that seems to be towards that end of making those students as articulate as they possibly could and then doing amazing things with it, things that are totally unforeseen, like professional theater and mathematics and laboratory science. None of that stuff could have been predicted by the educational environment from which they, those, those thinkers emerged. You write about the importance of shared space and time and personal interaction, um, which I think a lot of people may newly be sympathetic to thanks mm-hmm. to the coronavirus pandemic in which that's, that's missing. Um, not just as important for learning, um, but also in the sense that it brings people together to focus on a common object. And you pose that that is perhaps a rehearsal for democracy. Can you say more about that, about why people sitting in a room teasing out hard ideas together matters? Mm-hmm. Right. I, you know, to, first of all, you're, I think you're right. I think someone that might have been optimistic about the potential for online for a, a year ago is I would imagine it might be more skeptical now a year a year into Zoom exhaustion and, and a year into their kids struggling with uh, online education. Um, the there's a great image from the political philosopher Hannah Arendt that I cite in the book where she talks about the, imagining yourself sitting around a table with other human beings, and you don't really notice the table while it's there. It's just a kind of surface that's almost invisible to you while you're present to the table. But then if if you imagine the table suddenly disappearing as if it were yanked away from you or or, or became immaterial, that suddenly you feel weirdly exposed. You have nothing in, in common. There's, um, there's a kind of sense of fragmentation and alienation and distance that you feel from one another. That's, that's frankly how I've felt this last year with the lack of the common room and the lack of the common space to be interacting with other humans in in the same space in the same time. Now, obviously, you know, we've we've come up with all kinds of substitutes for that. Many of which work better, I think, for adults, um, and especially for you know adults in professional capacities and and adults in professional capacities at small scale. So you know. I'm on a number of boards and the board meetings have been, I think, fairly comparable to what we normally would do, even though we're still lacking a lot of the sociability that we would normally have. But in terms of learning how to have a conversation and making that kind of rehearsal space for democracy, I think it's, it's almost impossible the, the younger you go down the scale to reproduce those kinds of dynamics. I think, I think the medium is conducive to one person speaking and that's not really the way conversation unfolds. I think it's it's conducive to kind of one person being the center of attention. And that's not really the way a real around the table conversation unfolds and all the messy, difficult, challenging, wonderful ways that, again, a kind of ideal sense you would like to think that democratic exchange takes place. To get into the details of Shakespeare's Renaissance education, um, you explain 
learning about and practicing rhetoric. And I want to talk more about that because it does seem to be something of an archaic idea um, in many, many people's minds. So what, what is rhetoric and how is it related to thinking and what does it have to offer us today? So I think you're right that our contemporary sense of rhetoric is a is a really negative pejorative sense. It's it's often used dismissively in a phrase like mere rhetoric or that's just political rhetoric, which really means it's just words that you don't mean. It's just it's a cover for something else. It's superficial, it's manipulative, it's deceitful. So that's unfortunate because the for some 2000 years rhetoric really meant uh, all of the ways in which uh, a human can speak and eventually write persuasively, uh, be compelling in demanding circumstances, um, including those rehearsal spaces for democracy, like the court or like the um, political realm, um, like the Senate, like the any place in which complex open-ended topics need to be debated. Rhetoric was designed to be uh, a, a kind of enormous system of helping you to refine all of your verbal capacities. And frankly, it, it was not just about words. It really was about the full sense of what we mean in terms of knowledge. Like you need to know a lot of stuff in order to be persuasive. You, you need to not only speak well, but you have to know a lot of things in order to draw upon that knowledge and figure out what would be most compelling for me to say at this moment. So as just one example of that, the kind of comprehensiveness of what rhetoric used to mean, if if you take this word um, inventio, which gives us our modern day word invention, inventio was the kind of first stage of what was suggested when you need to make an argument rhetorically, but it, it was already presuming a prior stage, which you can also hear in that word inventio, it, it was presuming that you had an inventory of knowledge. So in some ways, it's a kind of two-step gesture, which is you need to know a lot of stuff about the world, and you need to know wonderful ways of articulating those things about the world in order to kind of survey that that inventory of knowledge and then invent something for this particular occasion. And so if you if you think about that as like the first stage of the rhetorical situation or scenario, you realize how comprehensive that program has to be in order to make a person ready to kind of speak on the fly about anything. Um, so, you know, on the practical level, what did that mean in the classroom? It meant tons of reading, tons of writing, translation exercises where I would take a model from one language, translate it into my native language, and then translate it back into the model language, which if you've ever goofed around with like Google Translate, you know how, how mangled that can become quickly if you don't do it well. But if you do it well, it shows, it, it does amazing things. It, 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 I, I am a, I'm so well able to imitate this model that I can sound like them and, and I can sound like her and I can sound like him and I can sound like someone from a thousand years ago and I can sound like my neighbor and I have, it, it's a way to stretch your, your verbal capacity as well as I think your cognitive capacity to imagine yourself into other subject positions. Like I'm, I, I have a hunch about what that person might be thinking because I've I've read my way into them in, in a way. So it, again, if you think of rhetoric as, as all, of the, all of the things that you might need in order to speak well in the future, 
it, it really demands a, an enormous set of human capacities in order to achieve that, which are centrally verbal, but in fact have to do with everything that you could ever possibly speak about. You mentioned imagining your way into a different perspective and you write that and cite other people who write that Shakespeare is a master of, of developing characters and inhabiting them. Um, how does Shakespeare and rhetoric get us to empathy or understanding other perspectives, being able to engage with them? Well, one, one exercise that is a really basic exercise, but I think it had a wonderful consequences from this period, from, from the kind of education he would have received, was called um, ethopoeia, or kind of thinking yourself into the ethical stance of another figure, or, or making, making a, a voice through the voice of someone else who's not like you. And we, of course, we know that there's all kinds of ways that that can go wrong, and all kinds of ways that that can be troubling and problematic and controversial. That having been said, it it, it is also, a, I think, a, a, a healthy challenge to try to think your way into a position that's unlike your own. Um, as Again, if, as long as you're kind of thinking through that ethically and you're aware of the limits of, of that attempt or that, that practice. So, you know, a little, a little seven-year-old boy in Stratford-upon-Avon in 1571, what does he have to do with a woman who's a widow in the Trojan War? I mean, it's from a different nation. It's from a different era. It's a different gender. It's a different age. And again, you can you can point up all of the ways in which that could be troubling. But um, if 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 part of that sense of developing as a human being is trying to find ways to be empathetic or sympathetic to other subject positions, one of those can be trying to imagine your way into what that experience might be like, and then imagining what someone would articulate from that position then, then too. Um, you know, there's, there's great examples in the play, for, for instance, in Hamlet, when Hamlet is looking at the group of rehearsing, uh, traveling players speaking the Hecuba speech, and the, the player starts weeping, and Hamlet kind of says, well, what's Hecuba to him? You know, what, why would why would someone like that get so caught up in that other subject position? It's almost a, an indirect reflection on the very thing that someone like Shakespeare or his contemporaries would have been asked to do in, in their childhood, which is think their way so much into someone else's position that they would actually end up crying and that they would actually begin to try to feel up to a limit what, what someone else might feel in those circumstances. And you mentioned um, Shakespeare's characters when they speak in soliloquy often do this uh, articulation of multiple perspectives to arrive at hopefully the best, the best option for themselves um, and, and, you know, asking the self a question and then walking through the different answers you could arrive at. Yes. That I think that's a, if, if you, if you kind of work off the premise that that, educational system was suffused with conversation, you can look at something like a soliloquy as being akin to a conversation with yourself. What do I do now? Well, what are my options? Uh, hmm, I guess I could do this, but then that would lead to this. And 
if I do this, then these people will think this of me. And maybe if I do this, this might work. But on the other hand, I don't know whether that's the best route to take. And of course, there's that famous saying that we shouldn't do this. But that also reminds me of this other famous saying. And so in some ways, it's 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 staging a kind of internal dialogue, which which can be a kind of modeling for a form of thinking that, again, is multi multi-perspectival, um, trying to come at a problem from different angles, as well as trying to find the right words to use to describe the situation in which you find yourself. And so even on the basic level of kind of vocabulary, you'll see a Shakespearean soliloquy where a character will say, hmm, you know, what do we mean when we say that word bastard? That That's a loaded word. Uh, why do we have that political category? Why do we have that legal category? Why does that affect my inheritance? What does that say about our world that just because my parents weren't married when I was born, I don't get to inherit my father's estate? Um, how is that going to make me act? Why do people use that word? Those those kinds of meditations, I think, are, are showing thinking and action down to the level of the word. What's the right word for this circumstance? And why do we even use that word in the first place? Um, you describe how for Shakespeare and his contemporaries, part of education and rhetoric was uh, doing close study and imitation of master writers and philosophers of the past. I can imagine that for some modern students, this might not sound appealing. And one reason is they don't think they are reflected in the lives and the works of the masters of the past. So is there is there a way to make this practice of imitation valuable and relevant to people who are worried that it's going to erase who they are um, or just kind of not reflect their lives at all? That's a great question. I, you know, part of the problem, I think, is that Shakespeare in particular has the kind of extraordinarily disproportionate status in the American uh, high school curriculum as often being often being the only non-contemporary writer that's assigned and or the only writer who's not writing in prose. So you have kind of two enormous blocks for that figure. And then a, a kind of, there's, there's, again, it's an outsized presence if you if even if you look at the common course uh, state standard guidelines for teaching literature classes it, it, they are very vague about not naming any figure whatsoever except for Shakespeare and that I find that troubling and problematic you know I think either you name no one or you name lots of figures from many different eras and from many different nations and traditions of writing in English. So, you know, part of what you were just pointing up is, is that this, this figure has uh, an, an, a totally anomalous status in the curriculum. And that's, you know, that's beyond any individual's power to change at this particular moment. But I, I think it's worth just raising that as an enormous fact. It's um, one of my mentors describes it as something like Shakespeare's like a kind of castle surrounded by a moat in the sense of, there aren't most students aren't reading writers from before or after Shakespeare from you know from centuries of writing that lead up to him and, and follow him. So that's a fact and that's a problem. Separately, I think you know the larger issue of imitation is something that I think we can all recognize in our own 
lives that we do all kinds of imitation of people whose behavior that we admire. And I think one easy, accessible way to think of this is, is through athletics and sports where I like the way this athlete makes this particular move. And I want to imitate that, not because I, I only want to be that athlete, but rather I would like to have that move within my kind of toolbox or repertoire of stuff that I can do. And we know that that's true for athletics and it's true for dance and it's true for musical performance that, that in the physical realm, we're very willing to grant that imitation is, is healthy and productive and developmentally appropriate in all kinds of ways. And it happens throughout your life. I mean, it's especially the case for infancy and for childhood, but it, it continues throughout your life. And part of becoming a, a, a human and developing yourself in any particular practice is finding models whom you admire and then emulating them and then incorporating those practices within your own within your own self. And then that becomes you, you know, then someone ends up imitating you. That's, that's your signature move or that's your signature style. So I, I always like to kind of point out that that is something that is, I, I, I think easy to agree upon. And then it, it doesn't have to be Shakespeare. That's the model. It can be any writer that you admire as the model or any singer or any, any kind of performer that you admire as, as a model, but then also remember that they had models that they admired and that goes on that goes on back beyond generation after generation. So one way to think of it is that the, it's not that you're imitating only one person or only one model, but you're, you're, you're partly imitating their inheritance of their models. And the more you can kind of push back chronologically that legacy of those models, the more fascinating the, the person you're imitating becomes because you're, you're reading them as part of an ongoing conversation. And you too are part of that conversation. You are, you are a link in that chain and, and you are like your models or like your mentors, part of, part of that ongoing um, dynamic of, of imitating so that you can become a maker yourself. And to hear you speak about dance, maybe another way to think about imitation is to learn the choreography of writing and thinking. Um, and it doesn't mean that's the only dance you will perform. It just mm -hmm. means you're studying um, you know, what, what someone great before you has offered. I like that. And I think the, you know, the choreography, I'm not a dancer, but I do have an analog in terms of bodily movement from, you know, I ran track in, in college and we did something there where our coach would have us kind of run in all kinds of odd ways that ways in which we would never run in a race. It would make no sense to run backwards or run sidestep skipping or run with your legs in this goofy posture. But the point was to kind of stretch yourself in a lot of different directions. So that way, when you came back to whatever your natural stride or your natural gait was, it was strengthened by the, the kind of forced arbitrary exercises that you would place yourself into with the idea being that you would become a better runner ultimately by not running or, or kind of cross training in all these odd ways. So if you think about that analog, you know, I'm, there's the premise of the book is that n I'm not saying that anyone should write like Shakespeare or that you have to, that you have to be exactly like him. Part of what I'm trying to suggest is the, the mode of thinking emerges out of this dynamic tradition of, of emulation it, so that you can do be the best you that you are, or that you would, you would like to be. 
But the, you know, the way to run a fast 100-meter dash is not to only train with 100-meter dashes. And the way to be your best self as a writer or as a thinker is not just to think your own thoughts, but to stretch yourself by engaging with other thoughts. That doesn't mean that you have to give up your thoughts, but it does force you to clarify what you care about and how you, how you express that in, in relation to the world. I want to end coming back to this idea that thinking is hard because throughout the book, you also make the case that at least in my reading, thinking is also beautiful and is also pleasurable. So can you explain a little bit more about how thinking can be both difficult and beautiful <laughs> and lovely? Um, well, you know, I, I, I like to joke that I, I don't like running. I like having run and I, I don't like writing, but I like having written and I think that's that's a pretty good way to summarize, you know, the sense of things that are are you're not just doing things because they're difficult for their own sake, but you're doing them because you have that longer end in mind. And and usually after having done them, you often will feel like, wow, that was really worthwhile. I feel I feel mentally taxed or I feel physically exhausted, but there actually was a, a high level pleasure that I was experiencing by pushing myself as hard as I could. And again, if you think about the athletic analog, I gave it my all, I did all the preparation I possibly could, and that was a great competitive match. And I, in the classroom analog, you know, I prepared as well as I could. It, it wasn't perfect. It was exhausting. We all tried hard and it could be better next time. But man, that was a really interesting conversation that we had or a student struggling with the paper and drafting it and sharing it with a peer and being annoyed by the comments that their professor gave them and trying to rewrite it. And, and it's not the best paper that's ever been written, but they really they really kind of committed themselves to it and, and committed their capacities to it. And they will be slightly better the next time they try to do that again. So I think, again, I think if, if you try, I keep on trying to post physical analogs or analogs to our kind of bodily activities that, that, that do hold for me in terms of the kinds of pleasure that you get when you, when you attempt a difficult task and you, and you bring all of your resources to bear in, in that attempt. Well, thank you very much. And you. thank you again, again, for your wonderful preparation and in perceptive questions. I appreciate that, Rebecca. You're welcome. This has been the Ed Surge podcast. Each week, we bring you stories like this one. If you like the show, please share it on social media or tell a friend. And we hope you'll subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. For more coverage of how education is changing, sign up for Ed Surge newsletters or check out our website, edsurge.com. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Each week, we bring you stories like this one. If you like the show, please share it on social media or tell a friend. And we hope you'll subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. For more coverage of how education is changing, sign up for Ed Surge newsletters or check out our website, edsurge.com. This episode was edited by Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Each week, we bring you stories like this one. And if you like the show, please share it on social media or tell a friend or leave us a rating. And we hope you'll subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes. For more coverage of how education is changing, sign up for Ed Surge newsletters or check out our website, edsurge.com. 
This episode was edited by Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.